0: What is up, good people? Welcome back to Holy Shit Pod, a holy irreverence, me holy conversation about spirituality culture and the world it's me it's your boy brandon c maxwell oh wait can i say i'm a token white person should i say that something like that yeah sure why not well i don't have to i mean it's the truth it is
1: (laughs) (laughs) and i'm katie ricks
2: are you not gonna say you token and katie's the token i'm pastor sam i usually go last because you save the best for last but we're gonna save the best for next to last today (laughs) (laughs)
3: lies and lace friends Sam,
0: it's not actually the best we've had to invite Natasha back. What's up, Liberty?
3: Woo-hoo. Hey! The superintendent
2: is back in be, 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 be the building. Be, be Hush
0: your mouth, Samuel. Be respectful. Be, be, be,
2: be, 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 I am back. I live because she just checks
0: him. <laughs> and I don't pay no attention to her. Check who, whatever. On today's part, we're talking about collective trauma and why the hell we're going back to work when the world as you know, it is ending or has ended. I'm not sure, but we'll get to that later. First, we have a few church announcements for the good of the congregation. So with that, let's get into it. Good morning, good morning. Welcome back to the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All the Saints and the Aints. This is the day this is that the Lord day. has made. This Let us is. rejoice
3: do, 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 and be glad in it. Come on, here with gladness. I will enter His gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter His courts with praise. Ooh. Come on, church. <laughs>
0: So we got a lot to talk about today, maybe just a little bit, but we're gonna do it in two church announcements. The first is Stephen Breyer, Supreme Court Justice, Bye. is retiring. Thank speed of God. Thank the good Lord. Now, that doesn't actually change anything because change the ideological nothing. balance of the court is still six, six to three. Nine.
2: Three nine mass. <laughs> it feels like six to nine.
0: It feels like three to nine.
3: You try to say six to nine. You know that
2: ain't even right. You nasty self. Your math ain't math. Where does that come from? People have been saying that. Black people. We're saying thanks be to God, but I think this is more of an indication of what the midterms are going to turn out. But
0: it doesn't actually mean anything.
2: No, no, I know it doesn't mean anything, but I'm saying I think the reason he's retiring now It's because they know they're going to get clobbered in the midterms. Period. And should he die, then the balance of the court is going to be uh, seven to two. Right. And so they're like, no,
0: we got to. Absolutely. And the sad part is it's going to galvanize. Republicans, right? Because Republicans respond to SCOTUS more so, SCOTUS being Supreme Court of the United States. Like, Republicans respond more to those things than Democrats ever do. We just don't seem to care. Yes. Mm-hmm. I see mm-hmm. that, Brandon,
2: because- it's about power. One of the things that I was thinking was the Democratic base is kind of like Biden's already a failure. Right. Some of them. Some of them aren't, you know, trying to even look, look more closely. But but it's the, it's, the, it's the world of politics, right? You don't get a couple of things through. That's the most public thing. The Republicans are pointing at Democrats saying, y'all got the power. Y'all ain't doing shit. And so now they think, hey, if we got a, a Supreme Court nominee and we know Mitch going to challenge us. He's an obstructionist. He's an obstructionist. That's going to galvanize our base. And so I think it's important for how Mitch responds. If the Republicans are smart, they don't contest this at all. They let him nominate. They let them seat a justice. And like you say, that's red meat for the Republicans. And they say,
0: this is why we got. I want to press that even further because I think the other thing that this does is also Joe Biden's attempt to respond to Black women who are saying every single day, we're the ones that got you elected. Mm-hmm. You would not be in office without us. Mm-hmm. And you took a whole 13, 14, 15 months to even start talking about voting rights. You haven't done anything for us. So you promised you were going to put a Black woman on the Supreme Court. What you about to do? I nominate Natasha. Shit.
3: <laughs> oh, that was so, so kind. But let me say this. And OK, even though it's been 15 months, it, for real, for real, like most people know, for him, it's tomorrow. It, like, it's been two days or a day or two because that are mine. Mm-hmm. And so we have to, we do have to keep things in context, right? And and take it into consideration. And somebody needs to be reminding him that, yes, you did say this. And maybe show it to him in writing where he said it or play, where he actually said that um, to his supporters. Well,
2: he hadn't forgotten that he said that. Like, the White House came out really quickly and affirm and that he still has that commitment once Breyer
0: announced his retirement. The White House came out. Joe Biden is in cognitive decline. Have you seen him lately?
3: That's what we're talking about. Come on, um, Pastor Sam. Lift your, lift your mind higher.
0: That man
2: is not in cognitive decline. He, this is not a shadow government like we had under
3: Trump. Have you seen him? You in cognitive denial, then.
2: Jen Psaki is not coming. Is that her name? Is See, how listen, you. Is it, is it, how do you say her last name? Know. The White House press secretary is not just going out there giving her own statements. Biden signed off on this stuff.
1: Well, of course not. They got a whole speech writer. I mm. stop. She wasn't giving a speech. I mean, regardless of who the president is, you. Cannot figure it out yourself. You have to have good people around you. So we can only hope that the good people around Joe Biden, despite his current state, right, despite his current state, will actually make the right decision. Y'all not helping instill any confidence in the
3: people. Is it our job to instill confidence in the people? Our job is to make things real. It's to tell the truth. <laughs> right? That's the truth. Right. Is
2: Trump going to be our next damn president? Shit.
0: We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, about truth and respect and confidence, but not today, Satan. Did you
1: just call me Satan? <laughs> I think he did.
0: If the shoe fits. But, mm-hmm. Kate to put your point about people um, working around Biden to help support him and help him help instill confidence in his administration, there are a couple of names that have been floated around lately. And I think that it seems like the people are doing a good job of advising Biden on who he should appoint. Did you read about who those women
1: are? There's about five, but the two top runners right now are Ketanji Brown Jackson, who was appointed to the circuit court in the district of columbia and that was i think she was just in june or july or august yeah of 2021 and she's, I think, the front runner. The other person is Leandra Kruger, who is a associate justice and associate justice on the California Supreme Court. Both went to Harvard, but Jackson went to Harvard Law School. Kruger went to Harvard for undergrad and to Yale Law School. They know what they're doing.
0: If they would have gone to Tennessee State University, they wouldn't know what they was doing for the record.
3: I was
1: just about to say that. Come on here. You're
0: right.
3: However, um not in wet world. That's You're right. right to go to the white best if they would have went to North Carolina Central Law School. That's right. Come on, North Carolina Central.
0: I'm tired of you bringing North Carolina on this podcast. That's too much North Carolina. We already got that. Uh, we got enough of it.
3: It's one of the best law schools in the nation, baby. It is. It is. Katie, you said if he chooses
2: either one of those, that'd be great. And I agree. I think a lot of people are saying Ketanji is the best choice because she's already gone through a vetting process and she's already been confirmed with Republican votes. So it's going to be hard for them
1: to change course. One, which was Lindsey Graham, which surprised me.
2: Now, that's Satan. Kruger hadn't gone through the same process. And so that might be more of an uphill battle. And all the Republicans, you know, of course, are going to unify and not have any justification for why they voted yes once and then no, the second time. But she's also the youngest. And I'm be like, i like, put a 30-year-old on the bench, you know, so they can be here for 30 years. Yeah, that's
0: my priority. I need the youngest of the two, which is Leandra Kruger, to be the one that's nominated. Because ultimately, we need somebody who's going to have a lot of longevity. Because ain't no telling what's going to happen with Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. Both of them got some health complications and issues. And if anybody's going to be the last woman standing up on that court, it's going to be a black woman. Mm. So put Leandra Kruger up there and let her be our Supreme Court Justice for the next 175 years.
2: I wish she could nominate Anita Hill. She would die too quick. I just wish she could. It's going to be exciting to have the first black Supreme Court Justice since Thurgood Marshall. We've been waiting on this for a
0: long time. Because there is no black person currently on the Supreme Court.
2: Not in being.
0: In phenotype.
2: Not in not in being black. and looking black, yes. I mean blackface. And I know I might make
0: some of y'all black folks mad who wouldn't say everybody black, even they they can have different opinions. That nigga ain't black. Uncle Thomas. He ain't black. I do also, before we uh, go to our second church announcement, want to highlight, for any Supreme Court justice who is nominated by a Democrat in perpetuity, this is how you handle your retirement. <laughs> I know that y'all love Ruth, and I know that y'all put her on your mugs, but Ruth was selfish. She was prideful, and she sat on that bench far too long Cause she knew after that 15th hip replacement surgery that she needed to sit her tail down. The other part of me who's sympathetic and likes nuance understands that they robbed you of that for a long time, and you thought for it and you felt entitled to it and we are sitting where we are right now in part because of your selfish ass. So Stephen Breyer, thank you
2: for our next church announcement. Put down the woman and thank the white man. Wow.
0: But I do also want to say this is the first <laughs> time in our history that there will be four women as Supreme Court justices. It's the most women who've ever been on the court at any one time.
1: It's never happened before. Are you thinking about it, Karen? I was, because I just wasn't thinking about Amy Coney Barrett. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) who's the third one right now?
0: But I'm sorry. So is, is Amy Coney Barrett like Clarence Thomas for you? Like, He's not black for us. Oh, cool. she's, she ain't not
2: woman. Bro, she's white. She's the whitest of
0: whites.
1: she, she real white. She white. She ain't, she ain't, woman. ain't no woman, right. I guess. She, ain't she, ain't woman. A woman. I just, she doesn't
0: represent women. We don't, we don't want to question her womanness, but she doesn't represent women politically. Right,
2: right, right. So we can't question right. Thomas' blackness? No,
0: I can do that. I'm black. <laughs> me and
2: Katie is women.
0: Y'all can't. I'm saying me and Sam can't.
3: <laughs> He's talking about me. Right. He was talking to me because I said she ain't no woman. <laughs> uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, so Sam, be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> trying to insert yourself into everything.
0: That's the problem with most of the this hitman.
3: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> For our second
0: announcement. Have y'all seen what's happening on Al Gore's internet? And by Al Gore's internet, I mean old people using the internet. There's this thing that happens every once in a while where old people get an article or a meme from like 17 years ago and they start circulating like it's the latest and the greatest hot news. Oh, yeah. I had so many old Black people reposting this thing about the Rwandan president closing. I believe it was like thousands of Christian churches and hundreds of mosques. And Mm -hmm. I was like, what in the world is this? And I kept Googling trying to find an article about it. Come find out. This Happened in 2018. Four so years Rwanda's ago. government in 2018 <laughs> closed thousands of churches and dozens of mosques as it was seeking to assert more control over a vibrant religious community who sometimes makeshift operations, the authority said, threatened the lives of those who followed them. So, President Paul. Kagame, was shocked by the high numbers of churches in the small East African country. There were 700 churches in Kigali alone. So he's requiring houses of worship to now actually pass a couple of tests, I guess you could say, to make sure that they're valid houses of worship and not just business operations that seek to profit off of people. He's also requiring anyone who wants to call themselves a pastor, a Sikh, and a mom to have training. So I couldn't find any articles from this year or last year even that highlighted what's happened in the wake of this decision. But I think it's fruitful conversation because I have never thought that a government would, should, or could shut down houses of worship. So this was a pretty bold act for 2018, especially.
3: I am mad at it. I think as a leader, President Kagame looked around and saw an issue in his nation and sought to resolve the issue by saying, if you don't have the proper training, then you cannot operate in this role or capacity. I think that's being a leader. Um, Some people might deem it offensive or inappropriate, but at the same time, he's the president of a nation and he saw an issue and he said, not on my watch, and close them down.
2: I think I would have questions. When you were reading, Brandon, you were um, talking about how it endangered the lives of the folks who were following kind of these uh, shade tree uh, religious leaders. And I would want to know more about that context. Like, because just when you said that, I, I was thinking about some of the things that could possibly be going on that actually might put people's lives, their actual lives, like not just like prosperity gospel, where people are giving their money and they poor, but like they're going out doing stuff that like they, they die from like moments later.
0: In some instances, it was actually about the physical structures. Like the churches were in physical conditions. Yeah. And th- uh-huh. they didn't meet health and safety standards, right?
2: But I'm also wondering what, what were some of the practices? What were some of these leaders saying? Because we've seen like this crazy Twilight Zone type of mentality where preachers are saying, you know, go and do this thing and, and these people, and like, two days later somebody's dead because they they believe more in that faith leader who was pulling this out of their ass and not you know common sense or you know just science or the doctors or you know but it's like no you don't need to go see the doctor that's the devil going go and eat uh, six
0: uh, frogs. And uh, you know I don't know. I don't know if that's what's happening. Oh, you know what? I just Googled. I just found something the church was doing that made it get shut down. It says that a pastor spit in his hands twice and then wiped it stupid. on the face of the You're parishioner stupid. during a pandemic. Oh, wait a minute. That's not that country. Sorry.
3: <laughs> we should have this- had
2: this conversation then. <laughs> the
3: parishioner <laughs> gladly received it because he's been there before. <laughs> <laughs> we should have had this conversation then because I think one of the things I said was, you know he ain't been in nobody's. sitting 70- <laughs> well, President um, yeah, Kagame would have been like, boy, bye. Your doors is shut. The doors of the church are shut.
2: It would have been on the list. He would have been like, <laughs> add that one to the list. Yeah.
0: Because we know he ain't got no education. So Natasha and Katie, y'all both have worshiped, do worship in... PCUSA spaces where there is at least some governance, even though there's kind of an individual church polity in terms of calling pastors to churches, there still are, is a larger denominational body that attempts to coordinate that and provide some guidance and structure for houses of worship. Could you ever imagine, um, what do they call the your denomination? A general presbyter or an executive presbyter or a district superintendent, whatever they call them in your tradition, shutting down houses of worship? Does this happen?
1: I can't imagine that happening. I have not encountered it. But the general presbyter, executive presbyter, they couldn't do that. It would be the presbytery itself who voted to do that. And I can't imagine that happening. I can't think of any instance where that has happened. Oh, well, wait a minute. The only thing that I can think of in terms of churches that have been closed are, are churches who have significant um, conflict or the the church can't sustain itself financially. But what happens there is you have like multiple investigating committees and multiple committees who work and really seek to find a way for that church to survive. And at some point, um, again, it has to be the whole Presbytery who votes to do that. But there's a it's a pastoral way. The churches may not think it's pastoral, but they seek to do it in a way that moves them to other churches. But it's not some blanket statement about
3: you being closed. Because power is so important. And the way that they would do it, it would not be a one hand fair swoop and say, you got to go. There would be a lot of votes in a lot of years. And by the time it shut down, people would be done forgot why we even in this conversation. And it would have more than likely would have to be financially motivated over anything. Yeah.
0: Sam, could you imagine this happening in, in... I mean, there's no Baptist church that's going to come in and shut down another Baptist church. But I think this is the point where I expected you to say something about like, this is what Donald Trump's going to do to every liberal church when he's re-elected in 2024. He's going to follow black people for the first time and Paula White's African angels are going to come and <laughs> shut down the liberal churches. I
2: have no fear of that happening, but I do think while some people are like championing what's happening in Rwanda, there's a real danger for other people who try to replicate that. From what I've been able to read, it doesn't seem like this law in Rwanda uh, requires them to teach a certain thing. It just says, Kagami was just saying that like in one town, there's 700 churches. These people have bought into like prosperity gospel. They're trying to get rich. They're, they're, they've made church a business. So he was saying, you need to go be educated. You need to have a, a, a legit degree in theology so that you are actually trying to teach people about their religion. And from what I understand, the law actually doesn't say... You can't teach Christianity, you know, um, Christianity or Islam. Um, And so I think there was some intention that went into this. It also bars clergy who've been accused of like genocide or war crimes or things like that from starting a church. But there is some danger for other people who duplicate this to suppress certain religions, which I could very well see that happening. Like you were going to pass a law that you can't you can in, in a very. Christian area that we basically, like Trump, like you said, we're going to keep all the Muslims out or the Muslims are bad. So
3: what I was going to say is this is one thing that I feel like we were talking about in my family, by my family. I mean, me and my booth thing. <clears throat> we were talking and we were like, I was just saying, I sometimes I feel like pastoring or church work is seen as a backup plan. Like you go into it if something doesn't work. And Sam, I think that was kind of your point. Like a lot of times and and this may be what Pastor Kagame was seeing, and I I need other people to see it. But if your other profession or something else happens in your previous life, you say, okay, I'm gonna just go be a pastor. And that ain't it. I'm gonna go work work in the church or work for the Lord. I'm gonna do this. And that is not, no, it, it is a call, not a backup plan. And so I think that is what, I feel like that could have been what he was getting at. Um, I know that's that's what I would put on it and and tell all the people, if you coming into theological education or you trying to be a servant of the Lord, you need to be called to this work and not just it's not no backup plan and the show ain't no retirement plan
2: Mike Todd Louis Giglio Mark uh-huh. Driscoll is that the is that the guy he ain't calling no names he started
3: I think in Utah Arizona somewhere doing the same thing looking like he moved I
0: mean if people are dumb enough to pay him for doing the same thing I mean I think about uh, Sean King Like, Sean King claims to be a social justice advocate ally. He's literally taking people's money and putting it in his pocket. And he does it over and over and over again. And people still retweet him. People still fund his GoFundmes, People still send him cash apps. Stop it for, like, please con artists, stop
3: and we'll continue to do so and 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 for a lot of it it's the appeasing that white guilt
0: paying a white presenting black man money to do things for himself anyways that concludes our church announcement for today we will take a quick break and be right back after this with our word of pod for the people of pod thanks thanks i like that
3: Mm
2: First of all, Natasha, you are one of the only few people that I have invited to my house, and my, me and my wife have hosted you for dinner. So don't be coming for me. Let me
3: tell you
0: something.
3: He ain't even invited me. He ain't even invited oh, well, me. I'm, I'm sorry. Let me tell y'all something. his wife make some triangles? Them things is good. Some what? They, they are called samosas. <laughs> <laughs> Huh. I might not know the name But I know what they did For my baby. <laughs> they are, not, they, are <laughs> they are triangles I said Triangles <laughs> She sorry, was she like is. She was being a gracious host. Jake. She ain't gonna even try To figure out what they is She ain't Ooh. like What
2: is yeah. this She was like who these triangles
3: Hidden They're triangles Good I'm
2: gonna call it by a shape If
3: she didn't correct you I said She was like you want anything else I said I want some more Of them triangles Triangles Listen All the food was good They told me what it was Samuel so you know you got to say the right thing because he don't want people to know he from Baymanet. Oh, I probably tell people I'm from Lower Alabama. So he te- he told me about 15
0: times. Samuel, did they say it's samosas over there? I thought
3: it was a samosa. It is a samosa. They call it, no, they same. call it
0: some No, they call it samosas. Really? They're from South That's South Africa. That's South Africa.
3: <laughs> 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 okay, so it's Samosa. Oh. But y'all, the Samosa come like in the shape of a triangle. <laughs> Pythagorean theorem. You
1: know what a Samosa is. Samosa. Pythagorean theorem, though, I <laughs> respect you even more. What this white shit you do? The talk- Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> a squared plus B squared triangle. plus C squared. Samosa. I'ma call it by a
2: shape. Triangle.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but thank God I don't look like what I just what ate. I, mm. I'ma call <laughs> it by a shape, but thank God I don't look <laughs> like what I just ate. Cause this ain't no triangle. Oh my God.
0: All right, good people, let's get back into it. It's time for the Word of Pod for you, the people of Pod. And today we are talking about a topic that I think should be on everybody's mind. And that topic is, what should we be doing now that the world as we know it has ended or is in the process of ending? Hadn't
2: ended. If it had ended, then the rapture would have came. I wouldn't be here. And y'all would be like, it's well, Sam, duh. <laughs> <laughs> My listeners know what I'm talking about. They wait on the rapture. Y'all, y'all know these two, these two seminarians, they don't believe in the rapture.
0: I know about the rapture. I don't believe in it.
1: Oh, I know. Is Brandon's not going to be raptured?
0: <laughs> you're right.
1: He's going to be here for
0: the tribulation period. I'm going to be the leader of the 144,000 who are left behind
1: <laughs> to save the rest of the world. I- distinctly doubt that. I'm about
0: to have so much money. (laughs) Shit. Ain't nobody following you. I'm about to move to Rome and take over the Vatican. You're going to be the Pope. He's going to be raptured. You are so extra.
2: Why are you like this? The world is not ending, Brandon. You're right, Sam.
1: It has ended. Katie, you're with him on this? Mm -hmm. Come on, Katie. The world has not ended. Sam, maybe you're the only one whose life hasn't changed in the last two years. But the rest of us are trying to come to grips with the fact that the pandemic has upended life as we know it. And for some strange reason, everyone wants to get back to normal and act like nothing has ever happened. Child,
2: you know I'm just being a contrarian. Always. I mean, I'm being a contrarian, but the world has not ended.
0: The world (laughs) is ending, but I do think that the world has (laughs) ended. And you do also like to be a contrarian for no good reason. But Katie, you seem to have a little bit of energy around this, maybe as much or more than I do. So jump in there and kick off the discussion.
1: I think one of the things that I've been saying, and and I like how the Washington Post kind of elaborates on it, is that all of us are dealing with this level of anxiety, trying to pretend everything is normal all the time. And so there's all these increases in violent, antagonistic acts of coughing on teachers and stuff like that. And I agree that that anxiety is like, I mean, I can feel it in my own life. And I don't want to give people a pass on that. But I think there's a lack of awareness or acknowledgement that life is just on edge right now. And I, and I experienced that as a mom most of all and needing to send my high schooler to school, she can't go through another shutdown where she's by herself learning. I mean, for her the emotional strain or the anxiety is there. And so you make decisions based on like am I worried about the mental health of my child or the physical health of my child? And at this point, like I can do everything I can to help protect the physical health, but right now the mental health is so much more important. I wish there were a greater acknowledgement of that in schools, in workplaces, in families and and such. And so I think that's the part that gets me the most during this time.
2: Yeah. You know, last week we talked about heroes, and I, I got to say that teachers—I almost would say that they're heroes—but I stopped short because Brandon says, "Don't do that." Ha ha. Because if I was a teacher and your child came and coughed on me, I'm throwing hands. Your child coming home mm-hmm. <laughs> with a black eye. If your child come cough on me, you can't beat up a white child, Billy. I told you last to sit down. Go sit down. <laughs> And stop coughing on people. It's COVID. I promise you, after that warning, Billy getting these hands if he cough on me. I'm just telling y'all.
0: And just for the record, I'm just telling you that you shouldn't do that because I don't want you to get locked up. If you beat a white child in a school, you're more likely to die and get locked up than you are if you beat a black child. That's just the way that, you know, racism works. Okay.
1: Right. I think it was a parent that coughed on the teacher. Oh, well,
2: definitely. I'm definitely throwing hands. hands. Okay, okay.
0: Different story. Hands Hands will be thrown. I promise you. So to this point, there was another piece that came out at the end of last year from Vox. And the headline of the piece grabbed my attention. The heading read, the world as we know it is ending. Why are we still at work? Mm -hmm. And for me, as a Black man in America, I'm like... This isn't the first sort of collective trauma that I've experienced. Right. Sam, when we were in grad school together and we were enduring just the first time that I think either of us had had the public presentation of Black death, wherein we saw videos, tweets, news story after news story where Black person after Black person was just being killed by police people and vigilantes. Like for me, ever since then, I have been experiencing collective trauma with Black people, right? Collective trauma is anything that affects an entire community's life for an extended period of time. There's an endemic quality, right? We started the year talking about moving from pandemic to endemic status. Racism has been an endemic in America forever. (laughs) And so, like... I guess the pandemic has made other people realize that there's this endemic status to trauma. And it's the first time that we've had a perhaps cross racial experience of collective trauma um, that's very different than the trauma that I experience on a daily basis as a Black man in America. So the article from Vox was asking questions about whether or not we should still be working. Like, why is it that in the midst of this major pandemic wherein all of our lives have been interrupted and and to be fair, it does highlight the other sorts of traumas we've experienced, including the murder of George Floyd um, amidst other sort of racial traumas. But the primary thing it's talking about is the pandemic and the fact that our jobs expect us to still come to work every single day. And for me, that's the challenge. It's like, yeah, I've been doing this for the last five years, for the last 10 years, for every single day of my life. I go to work in the context of trauma collective trauma, national trauma for Black people every day. And so in some ways, the pandemic has provided respite because now I don't have to see the racist people every single day. And I'm one of the folks who participated in sort of this great resignation and wanted to say, I'm tired of existing in spaces that are not designed for me. I'm tired of existing in spaces that are antagonistic to my being. And so I'm going to take a pause, take a breather and figure out how to re-engage in a manner that's more healthy for me as a Black man in America. So it's both and. Yes, it's been collective national trauma for me as a Black man, but as a Black middle-class man in America, it's also provided some rest in ways that I didn't even know that I needed.
2: I remember when we were in grad school, Brandon, and it was like one after the other. It was, well, Trayvon Martin, of course, early on. And then it was Mike Brown, and then it was Eric Garner. And then after these deaths came these grand jury decisions not to indict. And black people were walking around campus in deep, deep mourning. And the white people were like, hey, ho, here we go. It's a wonderful day, you know? And we were like, no, it's not. No, we were walking daily in collective trauma and we had to be there and we had to put a different face on, and that shit is exhausting. And so for us to be in this pandemic and people are melting down talking about, oh, this is horrible. And we like, you know, this is normal. Like this is what we've become accustomed to and have learned how to navigate in the duality that we have had to perfect as black people in a
0: white supremacist society. But so for me, it still is this both end because what I still have to acknowledge is that my class also impacts how I navigated the pandemic. As a solidly middle-class Black person, like there are choices that I was able to make during the pandemic that some of my community was not able to make in the same way. There are Black folks who were in this essential worker category, aka the slaves who still got to run the field. We need them to go to work and put their lives at risk every single day so we can still get our groceries. That's both a class and a race distinction for me. So they didn't get to make those same choices. I want to also highlight the fact that there are other populations, Latino, Latina, Latinx people, whichever term you prefer, Asian folks, and even white folks and queer folks, all of us experience trauma on a daily basis. But some of our privilege allows us to navigate that trauma and or avoid that trauma in a way that produces more or less life right, on a daily basis. And so I think the truest statement is that I would say has happened is that there's another layer of collective trauma that we've all experienced that none of us has been able to avoid or deny. Some of us have still made choices on a daily basis to act as if this isn't happening. And I think those who I've experienced doing things like saying I'm not going to wear a mask or I want every single worker back on site immediately are those of us who avoid our traumas on a daily basis because of our privilege. Right. In my experience, it's mostly straight white folks that I see not wearing masks. I do also see some black folks in different neighborhoods not wearing masks. Like I'll read that through the lens of saying black folks, we dying every single day. So, okay, what's COVID going to do? The police ain't got me yet. Mm -hmm. Versus A white person who wants all their staff on site so they can oversee the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. So those are different motivations from my vantage point. So there's another layer of collective trauma and many of us are responding to it just like we respond to racism, homophobia, sexism, classism on a daily basis, either in denial or figuring out ways to restore ourselves. That's my story. I'm figuring out how to restore myself and take care of my soul in the midst of a traumatic experience. So part of the goal of this particular Word of Pod is just to have an honest conversation about the collective trauma that we've been experiencing. Um, If you're new to the podcast or old, as a reminder, the three of us are religious leaders to varying extents, some of us more than others in this season of our lives, or that's more of a primary role for some of us than others. I don't see a lot of live streams or in-person services where in-pastors and religious leaders are sitting here saying, hey, we've experienced collective trauma for the last two years even religious leaders are getting caught up in this rhythm of let's get back to normal. Let's do what we've always done. So we're trying to be three religious leaders that say, yeah, none of this shit is normal. And in many ways, the world as we know it did end or is ending? And how can we be honest about that and take steps to take care of ourselves and our communities in the midst of this very trying time, understanding the sort of cultural particularity with which each of us navigates this pandemic? So I say all that to say um, before we head to a break and wrap up with invitations, what ways have you two navigated the pandemic? And how have you been able to take care of yourself and or what have you witnessed others doing that might be helpful for listeners?
1: For me, it's a matter of acknowledging the depths of the difficulty, right? And so um, I guess being vulnerable about that in a way that attempts to give others permission to share that, right? Not that someone needs my permission. There's this Twitter post in this box article that says, are we really supposed to be working while the, who is going on? You know, like everything's falling around down around us and we're supposed to keep going. And, and so like, I think that's my calling in those situations is to say, this sucks. This really sucks. I think for me, the ability to work at home for sometimes, which I know many people are not able to do, helps out because... I realized my anxiety level is so much lower at home. So it takes away the pandemic stuff related to it. It also gives me the freedom to work in a way that matches my rhythm versus what happens in the workplace. When we were working from home completely, I was walking the dog in the trails behind my house. Instead of working? I could do that because I had extra time before work because I didn't have to drive to work. (laughs) I was actually more intentional about taking the breaks that I'm supposed to take. And so it's been a better work life balance experience, I think, and just connecting to people. I think those are the things that um, I've been trying to do and what I've heard other people do. It's still hard.
2: Yeah. I honestly can't answer this question because there's so much going on in my life that I, at times I, it's lost upon me that we're in a pandemic. Yeah. Um, like I'm just like, oh, yeah, still COVID. You know, um, because I'm, I, I feel like sometimes I'm just trying to survive the other pandemics. Yeah. In case you all are wondering what that is, it's white supremacy. It is
0: the endemic.
2: The endemic. And it's crazy because oftentimes that's a daily fight, right? Even when there's not even very specific things that are happening to you, it's almost like the danger of driving. You know, an accident is always around the corner. That's that's how trauma is with white supremacy. Like mm-hmm. it happens at any time, any moment, any turn, you know, you could be in an accident with white supremacy. Um, and so you have to be always on alert, always aware. And I find myself Basically, driving in the Atlanta of white supremacy right now in the rain. Mm. Um, so do y'all know what that means?
0: Break it down in case we don't.
2: If you've ever driven in Atlanta in the rain, Mm -hmm. people already can't drive in Atlanta, right? Um, and when a few drops of rain fall from the sky, that means it's going to be accidents on every highway, every two miles. And so if I'm comparing white supremacy or the dangers of white supremacy Mm -hmm. as the potential for an accident, and I say, um, my life right now is like (laughs) driving in the rain in Atlanta. That means that it is is uh, very prevalent in this era of my life, in this particular place in my life right now. And I'm trying to navigate that. And sometimes it, it takes away from all the other things. I, You know, sleep is evasive. Yeah. I'm still trying to find out, maybe this goes into like uh, the way we used to do invitations. How can I make sure I'm taking care of myself? How can I make sure I'm getting rest? How can I make sure that just because I'm trying to drive in Atlanta in the rain, I'm also taking care of myself also being present in my house with my wife and my family. It's a lot, Brandon. And I know we're still in the pandemic. There are some things about this pandemic that I'm grateful for right now.
0: Yeah. Yes, Sam. And I don't know all that you're going through right now, um, but as another Black man in America, I can imagine it. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's been a challenge for me as I was preparing for this episode is thinking about the both and of my life. Like we hear all the time about how blue collar workers or essential workers didn't have the same luxury as white collar workers whose jobs just transitioned to Zoom. And as much as class is a thing, I believe in classism and in class structure. I also know that racism is attached to that and that racism is even more powerful and more potent than classism. And so for me, as a black person in a white collar job who has introverted tendencies and really don't want to go anywhere anywhere. Anyways, the most pressing issues that I was dealing with in the heat of the pandemic weren't related to the pandemic. Right. They were related to racism. I was safe. I had access to masks. I had access to shelter. I had access to food, water, all of my essentials. I even found safe ways to gather with people outside. And a stayed free of COVID-19 for the entirety of the pandemic. And so COVID-19 never felt like, I mean, it felt like a threat. I'm not trying to say I was above it at all. I was taking precautions. But the biggest threats were racist. The biggest threats were homophobic. And those are the things that consumed my time and my energy the most in what some people call the most trying times of the pandemic, right? And so for me, it's left me wanting and it's left me Deeply aware of a sense of lack that I hold in me every single day and the fact that with the pandemic that's impacted the entire world, I was able to take these certain safety precautions in that more or less effectively in different seasons, entire governments and countries were moved in a way that they were able to respond to the atrocity of death and sickness and the virus that was rapidly killing people all around the world. And I was raised to think that if I kept both hands on the wheel when the police officer came next to my car, if I wore a collared shirt, kept my hair neatly tapered, went to college, drove a certain car, make sure that I didn't tint my windows. I was raised to think that all of these were the equivalent of wearing a mask and getting a vaccine and that somehow those actions would make me safe. And that hasn't been my experience, even though I've played by the rules of the game for the entirety of my life. There still is an endemic going on that entire countries aren't moving to try to end and that governments aren't responding to to try to save my life. And so that's up to me. This is getting into the invitation moment of our podcast. And so I want to take a quick break and a quick pause um, and then we'll come back with an invitation from Sam today. But I would just say before that, if this is the first experience of collective national global trauma that you experienced and are aware of, don't go talk to Black people because we got enough to deal with already. But you might look at the experiences of Black folks and people of color who've been enduring collective traumas for the entirety of our existence. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with an invitation. We've come once again to the end of another episode of Holy Shit Pod. Thank you so much for listening today. A little bit of a heavier topic, but an honest conversation. We're here at the moment where we like to give an invitation to listeners to life and life more abundantly. I come that you might have life. I come that you might have life more abundantly. Hey, I come that you might have. Is that what you were singing? Or whatever. I don't know the words. Sam's giving our invitation today. Sam, what you
2: got for the people? I don't know. I want to talk about this invitation of a a self-awareness, even in trauma, that recognizes a need to care for oneself, even if you don't know how to do it. We always move to like, you got to make sure you take care of yourself. But I want to live in in that place where you're aware of that need, right? Even when the world is on fire around you, even when things are burning down, like how do we pause and how do we say, yes, I'm running on fumes. Yes, I've been going a thousand miles a minute and this isn't sustainable. Or I can't continue or I need some rest or I need, you know, before we decide what it looks like, that awareness to say this is where I am. And while I may not know the answer or the response to what needs to happen, I know that I can't keep functioning at this level. Um, That may be a luxury that some people don't have. And if that is, we can talk about that as well. But my invitation is to slow down, to pause and to say, where am I right now? How did I get here? Where am I headed? And what do I need to do to take care of myself in this moment so that I can wake up again tomorrow and start my day?
0: Ask those questions again, Sam, because I want to make sure people heard them. Those are good questions. And you had a caveat saying that everybody may not have this luxury, but I think everybody has the ability to ask these questions. Yeah. Now, the answers might look different, but you have the ability to at least ask the questions.
2: Yeah. And so I said the questions is, wait, to pause and say, where am I right now? To kind of locate yourself. How did I get here? Where am I going? And what do I need to do to care for myself to make sure that I can continue on this journey, that I can arrive to that destination and I can do so healthy, whole, rejuvenated in one piece, you know, and and then to go about that
0: work.
1: I think that's a whole way of saying it, Sam, because what works for one person isn't going to work for someone else. And what works for you in one moment isn't going to work in another moment, right?
2: That's good, white lady.
1: So I think it's a constant reflection and trying to figure out what you need now. Now,
0: my God, child, I've been asking myself them questions because whew, I forget where I am sometimes. I forget who I am sometimes. I mean, and as I said last week, to me, the best questions are always questions that lead to other questions. Really, does a good question lead to an answer? Where am I right now? Atlanta. <laughs> no, where am I right now? Where am I emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually? Where am I? Who am I? Right? Who have I been told that I am by other people? And who do I believe myself to be? How did I get here? And I'm not talking about Nashville. I'm not talking about in your house. I'm not talking about in your prayer closet. I'm talking about how did you get to the emotional, mental, spiritual place where you are? What were the triggers? Who were the bad actors? Oh, Sam, them are questions, honey. You came with that thing. And the question, right, where am I going? And if you're anything like me, your answer might be, I have no fucking clue. Yep. And if you don't know where you're going, let me guarantee you that white supremacy will put you on a road that will lead you back to itself and will leave you depleted Mm. and will leave you crying and will leave you feeling broke, busted, and disgusted. My God. So if you don't know the answer to that question, where am I going? You better find out, baby, before you get on somebody's road that you don't need to be on. Mm -hmm. So that's the end of the invitations, folks. And that is the word of P.O.D. for the people of P.O.D. Thanks Thanks be to P.O.D. That brings us to the end of another episode of Holy Shit Pod. Thank you so much for listening. We do not take it for granted that you have a very intimate relationship with us because who else do you put in your ears for an hour a week? That's so weird. That's intimate. We're in their ears. Like, what? I keep moving. Move on. <laughs> give them, give, tell them what to do, Katie. Tell them to rate us on Spotify.
1: Now, if you like what you're hearing and you listen through Spotify, you can rate us there. And as Sam always says, five stars only. And let us know what you're thinking.
2: We know some of y'all eat off this podcast every week. If you enjoyed the meal, you can head on over to patreon.com slash steel lab media and leave a little love offering in the basket. You got to pay where you eat. Now, you don't go to McDonald's and get your food and not pay. So Hey, where you eat? Some of y'all listen to us every week and y'all ain't with the Patreon. What's
0: up with that? I got a little violent. No, it's not violent because the black man is speaking. No. We'll be back <laughs> next week. Same <laughs> time, same place. Until Ooh. then. Peace. Peace. Peace.